is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything on this show, especially love, family, and developing healthy relationships from the start. And that's why we have a regular segment with a marriage coach, not a divorce lawyer. And today we're also talking to a medical doctor in North Carolina who sees a big part of her job as coaching parents. Dr. Rose Mary Fernandez-Stein, known to her patients and this show as Dr. Rose, has been a practicing pediatrician for 23 years and director of her own practice, the International Family Clinic in Burlington, North Carolina, for the past 16 years. They provide the best medical care and guidance for underserved families, and they now care for 5,000 children. She is also the author of Who Needs a Village? It's a Mom Thing, a book about how modern parenting fails to equip children with the necessary confidence and skills and how parents, especially moms, can change all of that. Dr. Rose, thanks again for joining us. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, you bet. Let's talk about, you know, we're getting into sort of prototypes, certain kinds of kids' behavior and also certain kinds of parents' behavior. Let's talk about AJ, the patient with autism. Take us through that particular patient. Oh, I'd love to. Um, AJ is one of my favorite guys, uh, and uh, he he is such a charmer now. Uh, but when his uh, granddad brought him to me, he was acting like, um, unfortunately, little more than an animal. This is about two years ago, and everybody had abandoned AJ, and therefore granddad uh, also because Granddad was the one who was left with the care of A.J. You see, when when A.J. was born, his mom abandoned him and left him with Grandma and Granddad. And soon after he was born, uh, maybe when he was uh, about 9 to 10 months of age, it was apparent that A.J. had some developmental deficits. Right. So he was not able to make the kind of eye contact and and start to coo and, and say the words that you would have expected at the appropriate ages. Uh, and so that, there began the, the path of this wonderful, I say saintly, uh, older man uh, to uh, restore A.J. to uh, being a, a, a boy. Uh, so two years ago, when A.J. was about six years old, Granddad had heard about my behavior uh, clinic, and decided to make an appointment to bring him in because A.J. was behaving terribly. You see, not only was he not able to uh, to speak and, and toilet train and, and he wasn't able to uh, function at school and learn things, but he was very disruptive. Uh, he would hit people who would not let him do what he wanted. He would throw things at people. He, if he didn't want to walk on his feet, he would just walk around like uh, a, a chimpanzee and, and walk down the streets and, and sniff people uh, because he, that's what he felt like doing. And it was clear that nobody had uh, channeled uh, all of that energy and the potential that A.J. still had deep inside into turning him into a, a little boy. 
So this is the young man that I saw. He was very difficult to restrain because he is is and has been a very large and tall boy for his age. So he wouldn't let me examine him. He wouldn't let me put a stethoscope on his chest. I could hardly keep him in a room for more than about five minutes before he started pushing and hitting so that he would leave and Granddad would just sit there and cry saying, what is to become of my grandson? And when I pass away, he would say, what was going to happen? Who was going to take care of him? Since even his wife had abandoned him because of of the problems that were in AJ's future. Well, and we got about three minutes here uh, to just get on the other side of this. What were the key things that happened uh, to get this behavior changed? And for folks listening who have come across children with these kinds of needs, well, the, the children still need the discipline, the, the structure, and all the other things that behaviorally can bring, bring in and reel in certain types of behavior that might not have been there otherwise. Talk about those things, if you could, Dr. Rose. Oh, absolutely. See, there was no challenging in AJ's life. There was no channeling of that uh, behavior into behaviors that were appropriate. There was the, the, the word no, but the actions to the word no were not present in his life. And all of this uh, was creating an unrestrained boy. And it was very sad for me to see that it had been left so far uh, so that even though he was already, you know, five turning six when he started seeing me, that all of this potential was not being used. And that's got to just that's got to just kill you, uh, because in the end, you know that unrestrained behavior is generally caused by the adults, not the children. Yes, and un- unrestrained and and unchallenged. No matter what potential we we can't see in that child. Each child has a potential, and, and we have to have the eyes to see the, the potential that each child in front of us has. And unfortunately, uh, we were blind to see that he had the potential to be a young boy. Well, and the good news is that this happened because, my goodness, it's so easy to just warehouse kids like this, stick them in a place, and the next thing you know, we know what happens, Dr. Rose, uh, it, and it's not good. The endings are not, are not happy, and they're not pretty. Uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about some more uh, as well, Dr. Rose. It, when people are in your area, just real quickly, how do they know to come to you, and how do you, do you charge them? What, what happens there, Dr. Rose? Well, thanks for asking. Uh, I'm in Burlington, North Carolina, and my practice is called International Family Clinic, or we like to call it IFC Pediatrics as well. I just had a, a mom uh, from across the state. Actually, it was a grandma who, just like you said, uh, realized that they had a child uh, with an enormous behavior problem where the family is not able to function. So they just picked up the phone and they called me, and through uh, their health insurance, we got permission to see them for a a few behavior appointments. And I do expect that at the end of the allotted appointments, that that mom will become empowered and be able to change that child's life. Well, thanks so much. And we're talking to Dr. Rose Fernandez-Stein, the International Family Clinic, and she coaches parents to deal with overactive kids. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we continue our conversation with Dr. Rose Fernandez-Stein, a.k.a. Dr. Rose, to us. And we were talking about, well, we were talking about A.J., and we had followed him into the, the clinic, and we were leaving at the point where we noticed that A.J. had both unrestrained behavior and was unchallenged. Uh, Dr. Rose, what happens next? And by the way, you're walking through a whole bunch of people who ha- have or may have AJs in their life. That that is so true. We we all know children that if if not this dramatic, it's close to this, and there are uh, behaviors that have a- been uh, unrestrained and perhaps unchanneled. Uh, I like to say that behavior and, and children's development are, are like rivers. They have huge potential, but if we're not the embankments that keep that behavior in place, that river is going to overflow and it's going to damage that child's life and the people around them. So just keep that in mind, parents. We we are the banks that keep the river flowing where it's supposed to. So what I did is I realized that this grandfather was completely overwhelmed, and he didn't know what to do. He owned a small business uh, and couldn't keep his business on track because he was so busy trying to take care of A.J. Uh, He, of course, had him in school, but the school was more like a daycare, uh, and he was getting called out of the school more and more because of the aggressive, disruptive behavior that A.J. had. So I told Dad... Uh, about the story of Helen Keller and how Annie Sullivan, who had become Helen Keller's caretaker, was able to see that potential uh, so that he, and even though he's the grandfather, was going to become the Annie to A.J. And once I told him the story and I, I said, this is possible, we are able to turn uh, people who have a human spirit, but they haven't utilized that human spirit so that they're not acting more than 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 like mere animals, we're able to teach them how to behave because we ourselves are human and each one of us has the the light of God in us. And he understood that, and he says, okay, so what's it going to take? I I said it's going to take patience, work, and time. And if you stick with me through those three things, patience, working hard on AJ, time, and the last one was a vision to see that you can actually change your grandson's life, this will happen. I guarantee you that when you do these three to four things, that your grandson's life will never be the same. And he said, well, I'm in for it if you are. And so over the last two years, I've steadily given A.J.'s granddad an area to work on. The first thing that we worked on was his behavior and being able to sit at the table. You see, his granddad told me that he was able to program computers and and he was able to find his favorite favorite YouTube videos on his tablet or on his phone, and in fact was able to find the, the after he found the YouTube videos, he was able to uh, click on a button that would make it turn into the TV and would be in, and they would be able to see the YouTube video that he was seeing on his phone on the TV, and I just thought, oh my goodness. This kid's brain is actually working. This is, this, that's pretty amazing. And I said, okay, we're going to work with that. 
because he has mental process in that brain, and he's able to develop a thought process to getting something done. So there is brain in there, and we're going to utilize that brain. All along, I knew that there had to be brain. Just because one is autistic doesn't mean that, that you're, you're not able to, to think at all. Right. And so I told Granddad, so we're going to work on sitting at the table and being able to hold a fork uh, and a, a knife at some point, but let's start with a spoon. Because he was eating off of the floor uh, or wherever he wanted to eat and was resistant to eating a, in a, a personable, uh, social way. And so he started working on that, and of course, that just like Helen Keller's story, there was a great fight with that, and, and forks and spoons were going all over the place, mm-hmm. and so was food. But within maybe a couple of appointments, four months, he came back and said, wow, that was, that was a challenge, but he's now sitting at the table and eating like a human being. I said, okay, so we learned that social skill. Let's start learning how to talk. And so we, we worked on that and recognizing several letters. And, in fact, he was able to, in a lineup of letters that weren't in order, he was able to pick out which letters were not in that grouping and say K. The K wasn't there. Uh, so that that told me that he has an a, a, an incredible memory to be able to look at all of these letters and say the K isn't there out of all the of the letters. And I said, okay, so this child with work can read. So let's get him to speak. And if he can read, he can probably speak because those the in, in, especially if he was able to say K. And so we started working on that. And so now he's, he's able to speak. He comes in and he says, uh, Hi, Dr. Stein, I'm happy to see you. Uh, and so here we are already starting to read and we're starting to speak. And the last thing, the most resistant path for him has been that of toilet training because I really believe that A.J. understands that once he has to contain his bowel movements, then he is no longer a little boy, and he's going to have big boy responsibilities. And so this is where Granddad is working on him right now because it's not a matter of whether he can or not. It's whether he wants to or not, and that's what Granddad has, has finally accepted, that a lot of these things, not to say that he, is, he does not have autism and then he does not have some development, a lot of developmental delay, but a lot of the things that he's been pushing back on is because he did not want to get him, himself to that next developmental level where he's going to be a big boy. And so now Granddad has worked and is working on getting him to have his potty training under control. And he is there. He's now speaking quite clearly, reading potty trained and able to have social skills where he's helping his his granddad cook dinner, put it on the table, and then eat it. That's amazing. And that all has to do with, again, as you had said, it's just challenging and channeling and creating those banks on the river. I mean, it's it's really, it sounds so obvious, but obviously it's not so obvious to the parents. And in a sense, you know, Dr. Rose, as I listen to you, I almost want to call you the parent whisperer. (laughs) That's and that that's really funny, but but it's it's just about showing the parent uh, that understands that the buck stops with them, that they are empowered, that they are not victims, that they can do this job, and they have a coach, 
and a uh, a cheerleader behind them. And and hopefully, if they don't have a cheerleader at home to say "Good job, Granddad," that they'll have me. And that's I think that's what turned around AJ's life. And now he has a hope in the future because he will someday be able to read. He will someday be able to do tasks and, and work for somebody. And I can see it now, and Granddad can too. Yep, and you know, I think so many of the problems in our country come from either kids who aren't parented at all, Dr. Rose, or from parents who just don't have the capacity to parent properly. And we used to, as we talked in some of the earlier sessions, have so much of this sort of obvious stuff passed down almost through our DNA. You don't, you know, say no when it means no. Put up those guardrails, and the guardrails are good. And in the modern society, there are so few guardrails anywhere, Dr. Rose, on almost anything that it makes the parent look like the bad guy or be, like, uncompassionate by putting up those guardrails. And I think that's part of what uh, happens to a lot of parents that I know. They just don't want to do it because they think it's mean or they don't know quite how to do it and do it with love. Um, talk about that as we, as we close out this uh, hour, about a minute. And so that's what Granddad said. He said the same words that you're saying. He said, oh, so you mean that I have to have tough love? And I said, yeah. I'm not sure that I would really call it tough love. I, I would call it mercy on, uh, on him. Right. You're having mercy on his future yep. and not necessarily on the AJ that you see today because that, that mercy that you have on him for his future is the one that's going to carry him through his life. That work that you're doing today, this is difficult for a grandparent not to just give up and not have to push his grandchild. That's not easy. He's had to, to find people who will man his his uh, small business in turn of, of being able to be there and make ends meet because he has sacrificed his his time and his future if, instead in the stead of, of AJ. And that's what it really takes for us to say, okay, it stops with me. I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to understand that people might say that I'm a mean person, but in the end, it's a severe mercy. Yeah, and I love calling it. When, I, when people say to me, tough love, I said, no, it's just take the word tough off. It's just love. Dr. Rose, Rose Fernandez-Stein, International Family Clinic coach of parents, as I would like to call her, I think from now on, our parent whisperer, not a horse whisperer, a parent whisperer. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our Wall Street Journal story of the day. And we believe the journal is America's journal, and so much of the reporting there is so good. And today's piece is called Fishermen on the Hook to Pay for Their Own Regulators. 
and it's written by a lifelong New England fisherman named David Gaithel. And David graduated from Boston University with a degree in biology, but no ivory tower could keep him away from what he's been doing since he was 13, what he was born to do, being out in the open water. As if the ocean didn't present enough challenges, now the federal government, his own government, might put David and almost all of his fellow fishermen out of business by forcing them to pay the cost of enforcing the government's own regulations. David, thanks so much for joining us. It's nice to be here. You bet. And, you know, you heard a little bit of that Billy Joel song coming in. It's one of my favorite songs of his. And I don't think that Billy had in mind what we were about to talk to today, but he was writing about the struggles of fishermen to to make do out on Long Island where housing costs just kept going up and the local fishermen out there just couldn't afford to live in the places they used to live. Uh, But talk about, before we start, tell us a bit about what you and your peers are doing. What do you do every day? Tell us a little bit about your life before we get into some of the struggles you're facing with your own government, David. Yes, well, uh, I tow a net on the bottom to catch fish, which I bring home every day to sell, and the money from the sale of those fish feeds my family. So basically my day starts at 4.30 in the morning. I meet my crew at the dock, and if I have one of these federal observers, I meet them as well. We go out, we fish for anywhere from 6 to 10 hours, and then we return to port, unload the fish, and the fish are uh, mixed with other uh, fishermen's fish from my fishing cooperative, and those fish are then sold into the white tablecloth markets throughout the Northeast. And you are not, you know, this is obviously not some giant commercial operation, and yet it's not recreation. I mean, this is your That's life. Right. Uh, we're small boats. I have a 44-foot boat. There isn't, there isn't a boat in New Hampshire, that's the state I'm from, that's over 50 feet in length. So these are small, what we call day boats. They, they leave early in the morning, and they don't stay out for more than a day, and they come home and unload their catch in the evening. And your 44-foot trawler is the Ellen Diane? That's correct, named after my wife. Yep. And, and so what are, you, what are you fishing for out there, mostly? Well, we fish for a variety of things, but mostly uh, we fish for what are called ground fish, which are uh, a mixture of a number of different species, things like cod, haddock, flounders. Uh, those would be the ones probably most familiar to your listeners. Um, but we catch about 30 or 40 different species all mixed together and all with different regulations. And so as we learned, I guess, and I, obviously your life is not the Bering Strait, so it's not deadly as catch, but what I really do love about that show is that people learn that Boy, you can go out and maybe you catch something and maybe you don't. And there isn't anybody to bail you out when you don't catch it. Talk about that's, talk about that if you can. Well, that, that's correct. I mean, it, it, you know, it, this is this is fishing, not catching. If it was catching, it would be pretty boring. <laughs> that's I mean, if so you just true. Went out and threw the net in and knew exactly what you were going to catch every day. Uh, you know, somebody likened it to uh, you know counting trees in the forest, except you don't know how big the forest is and you can't see the trees. So. Uh, <laughs> You know, there's an element of uh, chance, but there's also very much an element of skill. Fish are not randomly distributed in the ocean. Uh, they're very patchily distributed in relatively high concentrations, and, and you learn this over time. Yeah, and the talent for fishing is not randomly and evenly distributed. It is randomly distributed and not evenly distributed, as you well know, David. Uh, tell me this. The, uh, you intimated it before, but... So some days you go out and it's not a good day. Some days you go out, it is a good day. But now you got to bring that haul back and you got to sell it fast. 
So talk about that. Talk about the perishability of what you're catching and talk about the market because some days the market might fetch more money than others. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I think an old wag once said, uh, fish and company both smell after three days. Uh, <laughs> and it's very true. I mean, they don't get any fresher. We sell the very freshest you can get, fish that are literally sometimes less than an hour old when they're landed. Um, but they still have a, a fixed market life, and they have to be sold. And they're sold at auctions uh, across New England. There are three or four of them. And uh, the prices vary every day. It's you know based uh, more or less on supply and demand. The reason I say more or less is because there's a lot of fish imported into the United States. We currently import 91% of the of the seafood we eat, and and that affects the price, and that's external to what we catch. So it it makes it a little bit difficult to figure out uh, how much you're going to make. So already there are so many things that you can't control, and yet, and I think a lot of people are listening going, my goodness, you had a biology degree, and yet you started in this life at 13, and my only explanation can be is this is not only what you're really good at, but David, this is what you love and what you want to do the rest of your life. That's right. I mean, this is, this is, you know, I enjoy my job. Uh, every day I get up, I've been doing this for almost 50 years, and I can't wait to go the next day. The weather's good. We're currently in the middle of a northeaster here, and it's snowing out and quite windy. But as soon as it calms down, I'll be back on the ocean. And, uh, you know, what, what we see every day is what a lot of people pay money on their vacations to see. I mean, we see whales jumping. We see the sunrise every day. We see an assortment of seabirds. Uh, we're very much in touch with nature. Yeah, and you can't get a you know you can't get compensation for that. That's just that's what you call the bonus plan. So let's talk about yeah. you and other fishermen. And you go out every day, and you got to take enough fish to meet your needs, but yet you've got to leave enough for the fish po- fish populations to stay healthy. Talk about that balance that that has to get struck as you go out every day doing what you do. Yes, I mean, if there's not a sustainable fishery, there won't be sustainable fishermen. And so there is very much a balance here. And we've learned over my lifetime that that balance is not as high as it used to be. That, uh, for example, you can't take 50 or 60% of a stock of fish year after year after year. They just can't support that. It's basically what you call surplus production is what you can harvest. And that seems to run somewhere around 20 to 25%, depending on the species. So, you know, we have to have some controls on both the number of fishermen and uh, their effort. Um, the, the question then becomes, uh, how do you control that and how much oversight do you have to have? I mean, do you, do you just assume everybody on the planet is a crook and you have to treat them like that, or do you assume that most of the people are very honest people, and you just need some random spot checks to keep them that way? Well, and what's going on right now? Because there's there are multiple agencies and methods to manage fisheries, keeping the catches low enough that they don't deplete the stock and leave too little or nothing for next year or next decade. Uh, but talk about what that next level too far has been for you and your brothers and sisters out in the field. And really short here, because we're going to come back on the break. If you can, just about 30 seconds right now, then hold that thought and we'll be back. Or in fact, you know what? Why don't we just hold it right there? And uh, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we're talking to a guy who's been out in the sea most of his life, since he was 13. His name is David Gaithel, and his story in the Wall Street Journal, Fishermen on the Hook to Pay for Their Own Regulators, well, it caught our attention 
And where public policy hits the road, or in this place, in this particular instance, where it hits the sea, where it hits the water, that's where we want to be on Our American Stories. And again, this is Lee Habib. OurAmericanNetwork.org is where you can find this if you're not hearing it uh, when you want or when you can in the car. You can always go up on our website and catch what you missed. And we'll be back with more from David and more about his own struggles with his own government. is our american stories and we're talking to fisherman david gaithel and we're talking about his story that was featured in the wall street journal fishermen on the hook to pay for their own regulators we learned a bit about david's life life in the sea and now we're going to learn about some of the obstacles he's facing and one in particular david thanks so much for joining us yes nice to be here so Things have changed, and even though there are many layers of regulations in place, the feds and the federal regulators who who look into your business and want to protect, obviously, the, the, the fishing uh, stock itself, uh, you think there's been a bridge too far here. What's going on, and, and why does it concern you and so many of your, again, your brothers and sisters who fish out in the sea? Yes, well, currently uh, we're monitored in a number of different ways. For example, uh, the Coast Guard can stop by any time and search your entire boat. They have warrantless search. Uh, the state uh, fishing game agencies can do the same thing. Uh, the boat has a satellite tracking device that transmits to the government 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I like to call it an ankle bracelet for the boat, uh, even though the, the boat's never done anything wrong. Uh, in addition to that, they have uniform NOAA federal, you know, federal uh, agents and plainclothes people that may be on the dock when you get in. Uh, so it's not as though we're not monitored. Uh, in addition to that, they have uh, biological monitors that they pay for on all fishing trips uh, to go out and collect basic biological data that feeds into the stock assessments. And I don't think any of us have a, have a problem with any of that. Sometimes it gets a little overbearing, but it's 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 a function of government. It's paid for by government. In addition to that, they have what are called at sea monitors, which uh, the way I describe them to people is: imagine uh, that you have to register with the government two days in advance before you go to work, and on one day out of every five you go to work, somebody gets sent to your house. They inspect your car to see if it's safe for them to ride along in. And then they go with you down the highway to make sure you don't uh, exceed the speed limit. Kind of like having your own personal state policeman to ride along <laughs> uh, with you on your way to work. And again, yep. the government's been paying for them. Now they say they don't have the money and they want us to pay for them. Uh, and the charge is $710 per day to go to work. Um, that's bad enough, but consider that these companies that uh, 
produce these uh, monitors are for-profit companies. We have no say in the profits. And the largest of these companies is owned by a former uh, NOAA assistant administrator. Um, so if nothing else, there appears to be some crony capitalism here. Uh, and basically, this is going to sink us. I mean, I uh, gross somewhere between 800 and $1,500 a day. Out of that, I have to pay for crew and all the expenses of owning and operating a vessel. Uh, and you take another $710 out of that, and it's pretty easy to see that we, we start coming up with days where we get a bill for leaving to go to work for 15 hours. Yep. And by, by the way, NOAA is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and you're essentially saying that they want to force you to pay for sea monitors who are actually contractors and basically, you got to cover the contractor's fee, and the person, one of the contracting companies, is owned by a former head of uh, NOAA itself. That's correct. That's crazy. That's crazy. Now, what 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 are you doing about it? What what's happening? What's the next phase here for you? How do you fight this? Obviously, you are. But what what are the mechanics? What happened next? I mean, there was a obviously this is just a this again is a bridge too far for you. You just can't foot this bill. Well, we've been fighting it since we were told it was going to happen. They've pushed the date back now four different times in the last year. Um, but it's it started with basically a grassroots campaign. You know, we wrote to our senators and our congressmen. They, in turn, in a in a, a fit of bipartisanship, wrote to NOAA Fisheries and said, fix this problem. NOAA responded a few months later basically saying, no, we're not going to fix it. Um, and uh, it kind of escalated from there and um you know more and more strident letters from congress to the executive branch you know the department of commerce here which is NOAA, uh, saying you have to fix this and uh they continue to say no we don't have the money the fishermen are going to have to pay and oh by the way it's voluntary uh and our response is, yeah, it's voluntary that you, you voluntarily pay $710 a day or you can't leave the pier. Uh, that's kind of like saying it's voluntary to go to the concentration camp. You, right. know? Uh, you have a choice. You can be shot on the spot or, or you can march. Um, so uh, a group called Cause of Action in Washington, which is a government accountability uh, nonprofit, um, read about this in the newspapers. I've been giving interviews to the newspapers and to radio stations, and uh, they said, we think uh, this is illegal, and they had a number of uh, reasons for that, and so they have filed suit on my behalf against NOAA Fisheries. Well, and what's remarkable here is that making generally, you know, the the people being regulated aren't the ones that pay the bill. The U.S. taxpayers are are for these regulations because it's protecting the general taxpayer. The unusual nature of this is that they're forcing you to pay for the monitors that are on your ship. That's, it's preposterous, David. Well, I mean, I think it is. I think uh, this is what you pay taxes for. It's a function of government. And In one of the letters to the editor that I wrote, I pointed out that uh, Big Pharmacy doesn't pay for the Food and Drug Administration, that meat inspection is not paid for by farmers, and that the airlines don't pay for the Transportation Safety Authority. Uh, those are all functions of government they're paid for out of our taxes and i would i further pointed out that to me uh you know forcing you to sign these contracts uh is a form of taxation without representation it is it is uh, no fisheries does not have taxing authority 
Only Congress does. And yet they seem to be usurping the powers of Congress. You know, I think, David, in the end, so much of what's going on in our country right now is, is about exactly that. I mean, Congress is the one that, you know, is Article One of our Constitution. And whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, well, Article One is Article One, And that gives the people the power to, to say yes or no to taxes that are passed by our elected representatives. But who, who the, who the, who's Noah? I never heard of him. And now they're taxing you, which means, say you could come up with this money. Well, what would you have to do? You'd have to pass along the cost. All of your, bro- all of your fellow fishermen and women would have to pass the cost along to us anyway. So no matter what happens, it would be a tax. Right, but we can't pass the cost along because, as I pointed out in the first segment, um, most of the seafood is already imported, and and, the, and those people don't pay these kinds of taxes. So, you know, it would give them obviously a competitive advantage in the marketplace. And I, I also point out to people that if we lose this case, um, you know, don't be surprised to walk in someday and find out the chicken or suddenly costs twenty dollars a pound. You bet, uh, because all of a sudden. The meat inspectors are being paid for by the chicken industry. And, uh, you know, they can pass the cost along because agriculture in this country feeds this country. Um, So, I mean, there's some real serious public policy considerations here uh, that we're fighting about. And this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we're speaking to David Gaithel, whose story was chronicled in in a piece in the Wall Street Journal, Fishermen on the Hook to Pay for Their Own Regulators. And we learn early in this story in the last segment that David's been out in the seas, well, since he was 13. And though he could have done a lot with his life, he had a biology degree in Boston University, so he could have been working in an office somewhere and doing, doing what he studied. But this is what he loved. And again, David, I want to dig into that, that daily take, because the cost is $750 per day for that monitor. Talk about how much it costs to put, go out into that sea every day, what you bring back, and what's left over. Well, in general, on average, uh, you know, we take in between 800 and $1,500 a day. Out of that, uh, we pay about $300 to lease fish from people who don't fish so we can catch their fish. Uh, we pay about $200 for fuel. And on average, the expenses for the vessel are about 50% of the remainder. And the crew and I split that other 50% after those first big expenses are taken off the top. So if we were to add in the $710 a day to pay for these observers on every trip we make with those people on the boat, we will, we will be going backwards. Yep. We, will not, uh, we will not cover our costs for leaving the dock for the day. And again, the consequence for us is, well, you know, obviously so much of the fish is coming from overseas. So your point was, well, you know, That'll be the end of a lot of fisher job, fishermen jobs here, and in comes the, uh, the foreign competitors to just grab up the rest of the remaining market share. Your worry is that this could start to be used by some in the agriculture business to advantage themselves over others. So it's not just that this will destroy your job and all the fishermen jobs, David, but you worry about the consequences down the road, too. Yeah, I worry about the consequences for the country because um, basically this could become a way to circumvent the will of Congress. Uh, All these regulatory agencies all have regulation costs. And, uh, you know, if they decide all of a sudden they need more money for the bureaucracy, well, it's tough to get it out of Congress. Let's just charge the users. You know, let's say we're the EPA and uh, we decide to to charge uh, the, you know, the, the storage treatment plants in every town in the, in the country 
uh, for their own regulatory costs instead of paying for them out of our budget. That that would be an unfunded increase in their budget without Congress ever having uh, you know had a look at it. So I mean this is this has the potential to be very very serious for this country. Uh, it could be lead to an unmitigated expansion of the federal government and of the federal government's powers without Congress directly being able to control it. Well, David, thanks so much for joining us, and we're going to check back in with you in about a month or two and see what's happened. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay, it's been nice to talk to you, listeners. Same here, and this is Lee Habib, and what a story this is. David Gaithel's story, fishermen on the hook to pay for their own regulators from the Wall Street Journal. These are the kind of stories we tell here on Our American Stories Ordinary folks trying to do ordinary jobs being blocked by their own government. More after this. Don't tell me not to live, just sit and putter. Life's candy and the sun's a ball of butter. Don't bring around a cloud to rain on my parade. Don't tell me not to fly. I simply got to. If someone takes a spill, it's me and not you. Who told you you're allowed to rain on my parade? This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Barbara Streisand's remarkable performance in Funny Girl. What a singer, what an actress, what a talent. And people have opinions about Barbara Streisand, I think because she has such opinions. But my goodness, what a talent. We are here to talk about that talent and talk about, um, well, a book, a great new book, Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power, and it's by Neil Gabler. And just a bit about Barbara Streisand before we bring Neil on. I mean, six decades she's been at it. And my goodness, five Emmys, ten Grammys, two Oscars, a Tony Award, you can go on and on. Presidential Medal of Freedom. I don't think there's been a more honored female artist in the history of American show business. And that she can do it all, I think, must infuriate some people. But what we're going to dig into now is the life of Barbara Streisand. The other day we did the life of Bob Dylan, another iconic American life, an unlikely life. And Neil, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. And, you know, when we were talking about Bob Dylan the other day, we played a clip and someone had asked Dylan if he was surprised at his success. And he was like, no, I had always thought I was going to be doing what I'm doing. <laughs> I mean, and not quizzically, Neil. I mean, not cockily. He wasn't, he wasn't cocky about it. It was just, I think he thought he was predestined for greatness. And I, I, I can only assume from what I've read already that that's what you learned about Barbara Streisand. Absolutely true. Uh, I don't think you can really succeed the way that Barbara Streisand succeeded if you didn't believe in yourself. Yeah. And she believed in herself against the odds. Here was a little girl who had aspired to show business from you know, the, the, the earliest age and whose own mother told her, forget that dream. You're never going to make it. You're not pretty enough. You're just not going to succeed. Here was a girl who, as she went on to high school, wouldn't even get the solo in her high school's choir. <laughs> it went to someone else who was a, a more operatic kind of singer. Here was a girl who, when she first tried to enter show business, was told repeatedly the same thing that her mother had told her. 
by producers and agents. You're, you're just not attractive enough. You're going to have to find another profession. You're never going to succeed at this profession. Girls who look like you don't wind up being stars. Yep. So somehow against all of the odds, there was some sense of fortitude within Barbara Streisand that kept her going. You know, we're going to start off by playing a scene from the movie Funny Girl where Barbara is looking into the mirror at herself. She's wearing a chic leopard coat and hat with an expression made of equal parts admiration, disappointment, irony, and defiance. And by the way, she was capable as an actress of doing all of those things. And she greets herself. Let's take a listen. Hello, gorgeous. <laughs> Neil, talk about this scene and why you open your book with it. Well, this is a scene that introduces Barbara Streisand to the world. Now, she played this role, obviously, on Broadway and became a star, but this is the opening of the movie, and it is where Barbara Streisand addresses herself. And in some ways, it, it, it kind of um, expresses the themes of Barbara Streisand's career, uh, of her life, and of her work. Um, if she looks in that mirror... And when she says, hello, gorgeous, I mean, there is a sense of irony. Here's a woman who's been told repeatedly and is told in the movie as well, in the role of Fanny Bryce, Mm -hmm. that she's not gorgeous. She's not good-looking enough. The same thing, again, that Streisand had been told throughout her life. Um, And yet at that point, when she's looking in that mirror, she is a star already. This is how the film begins, and then we move into flashback. Uh, That irony has sort of been subverted. Because she is gorgeous. She has succeeded. She has become a star. And, and so there's, there is, uh, you'll have to excuse my dog in the background. Oh, no, we love dogs in the background. It's a running theme on the show. We never get rid of them because we love dogs. Well, Go on, Neil. two of them, so we may hear both of them. Fantastic. <laughs> um, so, you know, you, you get that, that, um, th- that image of Streisand from the very outset of her film career um, as a woman who's overcoming the, the odds. You know, Neil, as your, as your book title articulates, this woman changed how we think about thinking about the conventions of beauty, femininity, and power. Explain how you came up with this thesis for your book. Well, actually, it was, it, it was not only the, the thesis, but it was the reason I wanted to write the book. Uh, I'm an admirer of Barbara Streisand. It's hard not to be. I mean, she is such an enormous talent. And I I think whether you love her or not, uh, you have to admire her. Yep. Um, But that's not why I wrote the book. Um, The the real impulse for writing the book was the way that she influenced culture. There are many great entertainers, many people we we love to listen to, watch, uh, laugh at, whatever. But Barbara Streisand was more than that. She was one of those handful of entertainers who actually changed the culture. And the subtitle of the book, I I hope, expresses the ways in which I think, the paramount ways in which I think that she changed the culture. She redefined our understanding of beauty. Before Barbara Streisand, in entertainment, there were beauty conventions. And almost every woman had to abide by those conventions. You bet. They were all conventionally beautiful women. Barbara Streisand, I think, is a beautiful woman, 
but she's not conventionally beautiful in, in any sense that her predecessors were. Uh, Barbara Streisand was not a Doris Day. Uh, she looked ethnic. She acted ethnic. Yep. Um, and she also behaved in ways, and this, I think, bleeds over into the femininity issue when I talk about redefining beauty, femininity, and power. She behaved in ways that were not conventionally feminine. Neil, hold that thought, and we're going to pick up on the fem- femininity. We're talking to Neil Gabler. We're talking about Barbara Streisand and his marvelous new book, Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. More after these messages with Neil. This is Our American Stories, and we're continuing with Neil Gabler, author of Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. We just did Bob Dylan, and Bob Dylan is one of those people, I believe, Neil, that changed the culture, too. And, uh, and you're right. So many people are, are great entertainers, uh, but so few of them actually influence the way we think and what we do. And uh, thanks again for joining us. We pick up on that femininity point, Neil, and elaborate on that if you could. Yes, yeah, so, you know, the subtitle of the book is Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. And you, Barbara Streisand, I, I think, clearly changed the conventions of beauty in the movies. There had never been an actress who looked like her before who was not a comic actress. I mean, there have been comedians who, you know, looked sort of odd, but Barbara Streisand was not a comedian at least not primarily comedian. I mean, she was a romantic lead. So she changed that. But she also didn't behave the way women generally behaved in movies. Uh, Aside from, you know, that relatively brief period in the 30s and 40s when you had Betty Davis and Jean Arthur and Joan Crawford um, and Irene Dunn and a number of stars who were tough and who were certainly the equals of their male co-stars, you know, Barbara Streisand came into the movies at a time when women were basically submissive. Yep. And yet submissive is not a word that you would ever apply to Barbara Streisand. And, and one of the reasons that women always were submissive on screen is that that was considered feminine. I mean, women had to be submissive to the male lead. She was not. And in a way, she challenged our concept of femininity. And the fact that she came along at a time in the 1960s when feminism was at its inception, uh, I think sort of Streisand worked off of feminism and feminism worked off of Streisand. And she brought that, mainstreamed that, into the movies as no other star had done. So she changed really our concept of femininity and allowed us to accept a woman who was tough, who was often regarded as mannish. Um, But her idea was that women could be tough without losing their femininity. 
You bet. And that then, I think, you know, kind of leads into the notion of power. Because Barbara Streisand, both on screen and off screen, exuded a kind of power that no actress had ever exuded or exercised in, in the entertainment world which is why she could become a producer yep. and a director. And, and that she wasn't, in, in that respect, a trailblazer. You can't say that about Betty Davis or any of those, those tough women of the 40s who I think dominated the screen. And you're right about the nature of most female leads. It was the Barbara Stanwyck's. It was the pinups almost, the Lauren Bacall's, just spectacular and beautiful and could have just modeled if they'd wanted to, Neil. No, no, I would, you're absolutely right. And, and where Barbara Streisand led, many women were able to follow. I mean, there's no Bette Midler without Barbara Streisand. That's right. I don't think there's a Lady Gaga. I think you're dead Barbara right. Yep. I'm not sure there's an Adele mm-hmm. without Barbara Streisand. Or a Madonna. Or a Madonna. You know, Barbara Streisand just changed the whole architecture of women in entertainment. Yeah, I've just been reading about Charlie Chaplin's life, and he was an actor who wasn't just an actor. And on the business side, uh, he, you know, he was trying to empower artists, male particularly at the time, to take control of their own lives, you know, countering a studio system by building one himself. And in well, large Barbara measure, that's just what Barbara was doing. She did. You know, you have United Artists. Uh, you know, with Mary Pickford and, and Douglas Fairbanks and Charlie Chaplin and D.W. Griffith, yep. which was a way of taking over the industry and controlling their own work. Barbara Streisand and Paul Newman and Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman formed First Artists, which was a, a later day incarnation of that. But even though First Artists was not a success and, and it didn't last, Streisand still, within the confines of Hollywood, was able to exercise the power that I referenced earlier. Um, I mean, a, a woman director? Yeah. A woman director? I mean, that was ridiculous, unheard of. Ridiculous. And, Neil, and, and even when she did it, there were a number of, of men in Hollywood who were very resistant to the idea yep. and called her all sorts of names. So Barbara Streisand had to withstand not only the abuse of, of being regarded as ugly when she was young and still you know, persevering, but also the idea of being, well, she acts like a man and she's a diva and, and all sorts of... of um, you know, a program that, were, that was hurled at her, but she withstood that as well and was able to succeed as a power in the industry. And as you said, blazed a trail, not only aesthetically for women, but also in terms of power for women. You know, it's interesting, Neil, uh, in the past six months, I've, I've covered two really interesting people from Brooklyn that lots of people love and lots of people hate and they have opinions, but both of them have thick skins and they're both American originals. It's interesting that Justice Scalia came from Brooklyn and people have a lot of opinions about him, but here he was forging friendships with Justice Ginsburg and no matter how much you wanted to not like him, you had to respect his talent and his intellect. And let's talk about Barbara's childhood and this Brooklyn thing, because it is a thing. And obviously she didn't have the family, but she had a lot of Brooklyn in her, Neil. Oh, she was. She is Brooklyn personified, and there is something. You are rightly. There's something about Brooklyn that kind of pervades the people who were born there. It's the toughest borough of New York. Yep. Uh, it's not just a a place. It's a way of being. We all know it's a way of talking as well. You bet. But it's a way of being, <laughs> uh, and it's it's a it's a way of it's a toughness. 
as opposed to Manhattan, which is the, the elite borough of New York, and which scorned Brooklyn for an awfully long time, and maybe to this day still does. Yeah. But those people who grew up in Brooklyn, grew up with thick skins, um, grew up with a sense of, of perseverance, uh, and I mean, it was also the, the ethnic enclave of New York. Uh, I mean, cheek to jowl, you had Poles and, and the Irish and Italians and Jews, um, and, and they all somehow learned to coexist there. And that also, I think, toughened them up when they were facing mainstream middle America uh, and, and you know, were forging their way into that America, you bet. which had resisted this, these people previously. Oh, well, you know, we did a we did a piece on Yogi Berra uh, and, you know, he grew up in what was called Dago Hill in St. Louis. I mean, that's what it was called, Dago yeah. Hill. And people forget that Italians faced you know, all kinds of discrimination. My goodness, Jews, uh, you know, you could write a book about Harvard and City College and, and, yeah. and not stop. But it never stopped Jews or Italians from being proud for running away from themselves and being comfortable, I think what's most important, Neil, just comfortable in their own skin and being able to withstand things. And by the way, there are no safe zones in Brooklyn. And these people learned how to deal with insults, with tough times, and helicopter parents weren't protecting them. My goodness, Streisand's childhood. What I want to do here, Neil, is play a clip for you and get, re- and get your reaction to this one. And I'm going to play another one and get your reaction as well. Uh, let's play this first one. I had a stepfather when I was seven years old. But she says he almost never talked to her. And when he did, it was awful. She still remembers he once told her she couldn't have ice cream because she was too ugly. What made him such a creep? I mean, he didn't talk to you. The man never talked to me. Why? Why? You know, at at the time that I was a child, I mean, I just thought, I just thought that I was awful. You got about a minute right here before we go to a break, but talk about this stepfather and Barbara Streisand's really remarkable ability to deal with this. The most inappropriately named man imaginable. His name was Louis Kind, and he was anything but. <laughs> uh, and he did treat Barbara miserably, and I think in a way probably toughened her. But what made it even worse was that he had a child with Barbara's mother. Uh, Rosalind, whom he absolutely doted upon, and he and he called the two daughters Beauty, that is his own daughter Rosalind, and the Beast, his stepdaughter uh, Barbara, and and so you know this is the this is the environment in which Barbara Streisand was forged, and if you wonder why she's so tough, that goes some way to explaining why. Well, you know what, Neil? When we come back, we're going to talk more about that. You know, one of my favorite books of the last year is about resilience and how we build it in companies and human beings. And my goodness, that kind of childhood builds resilience. This is Lee Habib. We're talking to Neil Gabler, author of Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. More after these messages. So was love. This eager heart of mine was singing. Where can you be? You came at last. Love had its day.
father has a business Strictly second hand Everything from toothpicks To a baby grand Stuff in our apartment Came from father's store Even clothes I'm wearing Someone wore before It's no wonder that I feel abused I never get a thing that ain't been used I'm wearing second-hand hats Second-hand clothes That's why This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to... Truly one of the great vocal talents of all time. But that wasn't enough for Barbara Streisand to conquer film and to conquer so much more. And live performance art. Oh, my goodness, there aren't many greater live performers than Barbara Streisand. Broadway wasn't big enough for her. And one of the great Broadway talents that didn't spend much time on Broadway. We're talking to Neil Gabler, author of Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. We just played a clip of Barbara Streisand in a remarkable interview she did with Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes talking about her stepfather. Here, she's talking about her mother. My mother never said to me, you're smart, you're pretty, you're anything. You could do what you want. She, she never told me anything like that. My mother would, I would say to my mother now, why didn't you ever give me any compliments? She said, I didn't want you to get a swelled head. Barbara says her mother told her she was odd, skinny, and not pretty enough to be a movie star, that she should be a typist. Wow. And, and t- tell me this, Neil. She, she, the family didn't have money, did they? No, they did not. No, they were very poor. You know, Barbara's father died when she was 15 months old. Uh, suddenly he died. And, and so she never knew her father. And her mother remarried uh, to Louis Kind. Uh, but Louis Kind was not what one would call a, a hard and diligent worker. Um, so the, the, fa- the, the family lived in poverty. For a while they lived with uh, Barbara's grandparents. Uh, so there was never money in, in the house. I, I want to add one thing. When, when uh, her mother said that she would never be a star, uh, she told her that what she ought to be is a secretary because that's a, that's a profession that's secure. And Barbara Streisand always said that she wore her nails so long just so she couldn't type. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that, that would preclude her from ever hitting that, hitting that road. You know, it, it's interesting. We were, we're, we're going to be playing a Denzel Washington commencement speech, and he was, you know, he's a Bronx boy and uh, grew up near Fordham University in the Bronx, and he was talking to a young graduating class about the pursuit of the arts and do not have something to fall back on, uh, that you got to fall forward and you got to believe in yourself and you got to just keep going and moving forward. And my goodness, I don't think Barbara Streisand had a backup plan. Uh, let's- oh, there was no plan B. There was never a plan B. The second she got out of high school, and she graduated high school six months early so that she could work on plan A, she went to Manhattan and she started auditioning and trying to, to get roles. She even auditioned for the role of one of the blonde daughters in The Sound of Music, even <laughs> though no one could be more quintessentially Jewish than right. Barbara Streisand. But that's how, that's how eager she was, how determined she was, how indefatigable she was uh, you know, to succeed. And we know the Yiddish and, and, word chutzpah, that's, that's what it means right there, doesn't it, Neil? She is 
uh, you know, I said she was Brooklyn personified. She's also chutzpah personified. No but doubt. Here's the thing about her: when we were talking about her her Brooklynness and her Jewishness, one of the things that Barbara Streisand was able to do, and I think one of the bases for her stardom, was that she took her Jewishness and she converted it into a larger sense of otherness. You know, when you look at movie stars, and she always wanted to be a movie star, she never wanted to be a singing star, but when you look at movie stars from the period before Streisand, these are people we all aspired to be. We never felt that they were outsiders. We didn't identify with them. We hoped to be them. Barbara Streisand changed that transaction. She was an outsider. She looked like us. She acted like us. She'd suffered many of the same indignities that we suffered. And so when Barbara Streisand came on the scene, the source of her popularity, in my estimation, was that we could identify with her, and she was our vicarious vessel for success. Yeah, I always thought you... She made her otherness our otherness. You bet. And that made her almost the underdog that we all rooted for. And also, well, we're all underdogs, most of us. And though she had this colossal voice, which I actually think when you have that much talent, Neil, it can put a distance between you and the audience. But when you're acting and you're acting the way she did, I always felt like the the ordinary woman was looking at Barbara Streisand and saying, go get him. Go get him. The ordinary woman was looking at Barbara Streisand and also saying, I know that she knows what I've been going through. That's true. She had had to go through the same thing. And it's interesting to me that when you look at her movies, her movies are about that. Yep. You know, she generally plays a woman who's been put upon, a woman who has to fight to succeed, uh, a woman who doesn't always get the guy at the end of the movie. That's right. Most of her movies are romances, but if you look at her movies, at the end of the film, whether it's, it's Funny Girl or it's The Way We Were or it's Yentl, she doesn't usually get the guy right and this is by the way is the opposite of woody allen who always gets the beautiful woman always yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well he's another sort of vicariousness <laughs> well that is that is a male vicariousness and that's we, we are dreamers in the end and women well they live on the planet earth <laughs> and again another brooklyn boy woody allen uh, alan Koningsberg. uh by the way sort of he never hid his jewishness in his act neil but my goodness, in his name, he certainly did. Yes. And, you know, Streisand, never, another interesting thing about her is she traded on her Jewishness. You bet. You know, most Jewish stars, most ethnic stars, let's not even, you know, uh, limit this to, to Jewish. You bet Italians. Ethnic stars tried to hide their ethnicity because it didn't sell in Hollywood. Yep. Um, Streisand was one of those people who succeeded not in spite of her Jewishness, but because of her Jewishness. I think that's a powerful thing, and one of the, I think one of the most powerful takeaways from the book, Neil, is that she didn't run from herself, and she didn't hide. And in an era where I think Hollywood was receptive to this, I wonder how this would have worked, Neil, if Barbara were born 15 years earlier. Oh, I think it would have been different. Yep. Although it's hard to say that because she is so unique an individual that maybe, maybe, just maybe, she did have enough fortitude to have even fought through that 15 years earlier. But you just think about one thing, Lee. Just think about the nose job. Everyone told her, you have to get a nose job. 
I mean, she was told this repeatedly. There were reviews of her oh, yeah. saying that, you, you know, if she gets her nose fixed, maybe she'll have a chance of succeeding. The pressure on her to get that nose fixed was pretty heavy, and she always resisted it for the very reason that you pointed out, because she said, I wouldn't be me. Yep. And by the way, one of the movie critics I, I, was most, I thought most loathsome was John Simon. And the way he treated Barbara Streisand's looks in his movie reviews, I thought, my goodness, it's just disgraceful. And what a writer he is, by the way, and what a talent. But what a despicable man. And I, I, she had to withstand that her entire life, actually, Neil. And, and I think right to the end, there were these, these people who were just mean, just like that stepdad. We're, we're talking to... One of, the, one of the authors of one of our favorite books of the year, and it's Neil Gabler, and the book is Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. And when we come back, we're going to talk about this meteoric rise to fame, that first movie, that first movie that gets a very young Barbara Streisand, an Oscar, an Oscar, crazy, crazy talent, but more importantly, just crazy, great fortitude, and character. More about this remarkable life story. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the life of Barbara Streisand. North and south and east and west of your life I have only one request of your life That you spend it all with me Used to be so natural to talk about forever. What used to be's don't count anymore. They just lay on the floor till we sweep them away. Baby, I remember all the things you taught me. I learned how to laugh and I learned how to cry. This is Our American Stories, and we're talking to Neil Gabler, author of Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. And what are the odds of this, Neil? Neil Diamond and Barbara Streisand were classmates at Erasmus High School in Brooklyn. That's crazy. It sure is. (laughs) You can't make that up. Hey, let's talk about her rise to fame, and it's funny, girl, and nobody's ever seen anything like it. Was anybody prepared for it, Neil? Did anyone know it was coming, except Barbara? Well, she knew it was coming once she had landed the role. Um, and there were other people who anticipated it. You know, she, the thing about the, Barbara Streisand, she was so young. You know, she was 21 years old when she starred in Funny Girl. Now that is, is kind of mind-boggling to think that this woman captivates all of Broadway at that age. But she sort of knew it was going to happen. Um, I don't think she had butterflies. I don't think she, she had you know, a great deal of self-doubt. And the thing was that once she landed the role, and once the producers of the, of the play and the directors of the play saw her, they knew she was going to make it too. 
And opening night was historic. It's a, it's a historic night in the history of show business because that night, Barbara Streisand walked onto that stage and into the annals of show business history. She was the cover of Time magazine the next week. That's how immediate the impact was. And then, of course, she makes her very first movie, which was the film version of Funny Girl, and she wins the Oscar. Yeah, there's no, I don't think there's another career that has a parallel to that trajectory and that path, Neil, is there? Not that, not that rapidly. And it's not just, you know, from Broadway to Hollywood. But then at the same time, she's recording albums that win her two consecutive Grammys for Album of the Year. Uh, she's the female vocalist of the year. So she's, at, at this very young age, you know, she's 21, 22, 23, she is triumphing in, in all of these different areas, um, in, in nightclubs as well. I mean, you know, that's another area in which she is triumphant. Uh, there's a wonderful story when she is at the uh, Copacabana, and uh, she comes out, the Coconut Grove, excuse me, the Coconut Grove in Los Angeles, and she comes out, and you know, every star in Hollywood is there for the first nightclub appearance of Barbara Streisand, and she looks around and she says, you know, if I'd known there were going to be this many people, I would have had my nose fixed. <laughs> By the way, Neil, she had a wicked and great sense of humor on the screen, too, though she loved to play the, the, you know, the lead uh, character in romantic parts. My goodness, could she be funny, too? Well, that was one of the things that she was able to, to straddle, is she could be the romantic lead, but she could also play the comedian. And, and there aren't many actresses who, particularly today, you know, who, can, who can straddle those two ex- self-deprecating. You know, she, could, she was always able to make fun of herself. Yep. You know, she's often regarded as being a diva, but there is a, there is a, a, a way in which you know, Barbara Streisand was able to undermine herself, and that was another bond, I think, between herself and her audience. That's a real talent to have that kind of self-awareness, too, Neil. I mean, in the end, that may be one of the greatest talents of all as an actor, an actress, and a performer, is to know how you're perceived and to, well, get ahead of it and control the audience and get them to think what you want them to think about you. And to connect with them. Yep. You know, Barbara Streisand connected with audiences in a way that very few performers have, which I think explains the the nearly 60-year career that she's had. She connected with audiences. They felt that, as I said earlier, she was performing their lives, not just performing for them, but performing them. The songs she sings, even You Don't Send Me Flowers, or People, or Cry Me a River, um... You know, those are songs that express a longing and a loneliness that her fans could connect to. And the characters she plays on screen are characters that her fans can connect to as individuals who are outsiders, who are marginalized. Yep. Streisand understood herself and her connection to that audience. You know, it's interesting, Neil. We did an hour on Frank Sinatra, and there was always this part in the set, and we hear him saying this himself, where he said, these are the songs about losers. And, mm-hmm. and he was always writing about losers and that kid from Hoboken, which is the Brooklyn of New Jersey, frankly. And the whole state of New Jersey sort of has this same sort of chip on its shoulder and attitude, too. And it gives us Jack Nicholson and it gives us Bruce Willis and it gives us Frank Sinatra and it gives us Bruce Springsteen. There's something about these surrounding spots around New York City 
that, that just produce this talent. I want to talk to you about Yentl. Um, because when I watched this movie, I thought this has got to be the personal desire. Uh, this, this manifests itself as something that I thought was very deep uh, and deeply held to, to Barbara Streisand. How important was that movie to her? Very important. Now, I would say that all of her movies, almost all of her movies, let me, let me, uh, let me put in that little proviso, you know, almost all of her movies were very personal. She didn't make movies that were impersonal, but Yentl was a movie she fought to make. Right. Yentl was a movie she fought years and years to make. She couldn't get financing for it. Nobody wanted her to do it. Her own boyfriend at the time, John Peters, told her she shouldn't do it, which was one of the reasons why they split. Um, but she persisted, as she had persisted earlier, against all odds, and wound up obviously being able to make the film, star in the film, direct the film, and make the film financially successful as well. And yes, I think there's something very personal about that. Why did she want to make it so badly? Yeah. I think that the, the idea of a woman who is scorned, a woman who is treated as an outsider, a woman who is told she will never succeed, that is her story. And then a woman who, by dressing as a man, you know, triumphs over the men, that's also part of her story. Mm-hmm. So there are some people who would say that she acted like a man. She didn't literally dress like a man, right. but she always acted like a man in Hollywood. So that's part of her story. And I think the, the whole notion that in doing so, you don't really win the man. That was something that happened to Barbara Streisand until, you know, relatively recently in her life, until 1998 when she met James Brolin uh, and got married. Uh, you know, she was someone who was almost too much of a woman for many of the men with whom she had um, had relationships. Yep. You know, she was just too tough. Yep. Too tough, um, too strong, and probably in the end a lot of the men didn't feel like men um, because of her yes. strength, Neil. I, I think that's true. Um, and she understood that as well. And I think the, the, the proof of her understanding of that is Yentl. Yep. So true. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, as I remember the movie, she, she sings only in that movie. And when she's singing, it's the equivalent of a soliloquy in Shakespeare. You're getting the inner thoughts. And was that her idea? Because it was really a brilliant... A lot of people criticized her for not letting Mandy Patinkin sing, this great Broadway singer. But that wasn't her trying to not let him sing. It was a dramatic device, and it was a brilliant dramatic device. In fact, she didn't want this to be a musical. And the only way that she could get the financing for the film was to make it a musical because then they knew they could sell the album. Wow. But what they wanted was a Barbara Streisand album. (laughs) They didn't just want a cast album. Right. They wanted an album of hers. So how did she finesse this? She finessed it by doing precisely as you say, turning every song into a personal soliloquy. Well, in effect, what it does is it allows her to emote in the movie in a very powerful way to the audience and, and allow her to, allows her to achieve some very subtle effects. I mean, one of my favorite songs in the film is No Wonder He Loves Her, which is where she's observing why Mandy Potemkin is in love with Amy Irving, because yep. Amy Irving is a conventional woman exactly. and submissive. And then she sings that song again later in the film, a reprise of that song. Uh, no wonder he loves her, but she's really talking about herself and saying why she loves the way that Amy Irving behaves, because it's a, it's a kind of a femininity that she can't achieve herself. 
and and the 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 first rendition of that song and its reprise is a very powerful statement in the film and a very subtle effect in that movie. Indeed, and that what a vulnerability uh, that she is able to express on film too, Neil. And I think that may be her greatest characteristic. And I think that's what makes so many of the great artists great. They're willing to expose their own personal wounds to the world. Neil Gabler, Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity and Power. Thanks for writing this great book. Oh, thank you so much. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And again, we love every kind of story. How many, how many shows and radio will give you an hour on John D. Rockefeller, an hour on Justice Scalia, and an hour on Barbara Streisand. And we love doing it, and we're going to keep doing it, and you keep telling us to do more, and we're going to. And again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Neil Gabler, Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. Go to Amazon. Order it now. We've learned to say lovers.